absorbed in the body and the mind, which are coverings of the living being. When we are absorbed in them as being, as it were, the only reality, we will become victims, victims of our own mind. In the Bhagavad Gita, it states that the friend, the mind, can be the best friend or the greatest of enemies. For one whose mind is uncontrolled, know it to be a great enemy. And it's kind of like, whoa, that sounds like pretty heavy stuff. The idea that my own mind could be a greater enemy to me than anyone or anything else in this world is probably quite startling. But that is a reality. All you have to do is look at the examples of people who have become utterly overwhelmed by what's going on in the mind. All you need to do is have experienced or know someone that's experienced depression severe depression. In that state, a person is utterly victimized by the mind and where it is going and feels, is not even aware that they can step out of that. They say, this is me. This is what I'm going through. And this is, that's it. And of course, that unfortunately le leads to the ultimate victimization of the mind, of the living being, where people become suicidal. You know, and it's just over some crap going on in your mind and the inability to be able to step aside, like in the silent witness technique, to be learn to become an observer. You can sit on the bank of the river and watch it, even if it's raging going by. You don't have to jump in and become swept away by the currents. And this is actually what mindfulness is all about. One of the reasons that we say that the mind can be the greatest of enemies is because all action begins with a thought. And an inescapable reality is that every time you engage in an action, there will be a reaction. You will experience the result or the consequences of every single act that you make, and you cannot avoid it. You cannot get around it. It will happen. In the Vedic teachings, when they speak about reincarnation or the transmigration of the soul, it is understood that when you enter a new experience of a new body and a new life, you actually bring 
monumental amount of baggage with you. This baby doesn't, is not so innocent and pure and no, this dude, the body may be completely new. The soul, the living being is not new, that is eternal. And it brings with it monumental amounts of baggage. Baggage in the way of the fruit or the result of past action. This word karma means action. And the result of action is called karma phalam. Phalam means fruit, the fruit of your actions. And so due to the fruit of your actions, people will be born with different types of bodies, different types of physical appearances, have different types of talents or no talents at all, different levels of intelligence. And in their life, this experience in this particular body there will be things that happen to them that came unasked. You know, you hear sometimes people say, why do bad things happen to good people? That's why. In this lifetime, a person may be very good, but because previously they have engaged in, in bad activity, so they will have to experience the consequence. Sometimes we experience that consequence in this lifetime and sometimes in... in future lifetimes. So when we don't exercise control of our mind, when our mind is controlling us, and then the mind is just like, it, it becomes subject to so many different types of, of influences. And in, in the yoga teachings, they, they have real... Um, detailed specificity of the nature of different types of forces that you can't even see that are affecting us and affect us at different times in our life or different times of a day. And we have a tendency then towards certain types of action. The most wonderful thing that you can do is to reclaim your life rather than simply being moved by external forces and your own mind and how your mind is reacting to things, you begin to determine what type of thoughts you are going to have, how you are going to think about things, how you are going to deal with things. You can begin to chart a course to have a incredibly purposeful life. You decide, I want to be in this place, and now I must begin to act in a very conscious way in order that I can arrive at that place. And so the idea of, of mindfulness, which is, this is really what mindfulness is about. People, you know, they, I, I feel so, I get angry and upset when people are misled by so much hocus-pocus and fluffy stuff, you know, living in the now. And, and all that wanting to meditate upon is some incredibly sensual experience that's happening right now. No, that is an activity that will have a fruit that will bind the living being. There will be consequences and result. It is impossible.
possible to live in the now without becoming deeply absorbed in an awareness of your spiritual identity. That's the time that time stands still. If you live in the external world of time and space, there is no now. Every time you say now, it's gone. It's become past. <laughs> and so there's just this constant flow and you say you're living in the now, but all people are being taught to do is just become absorbed in some sensual sort of experience and, and be totally into it and really feel the moment. And it's like, well, how's it going to help you? That's not going to help you. That's just going to further entangle you in the material world. It's not going to deliver on real fulfillment or any great blissfulness or anything. That's a, that's a spiritual experience. I, I give um, meditation and mindfulness classes in, in one of the maximum security prisons in, in um, Auckland and deal with rapists, murderers, molesters, you know, violent criminals. And it's really extraordinary in dealing with these people. Um, many of them have been brought up in, in, with horrible backgrounds. Not everyone, but a very large number. They've never known real affection. Quite often you've got parents that are drug or alcohol addicts, the children are left to their own devices, they're often subject to violence, they're often um, sexually molested at a very young age, boys and girls. And um, so they become real angry people who have no trust in authority, that have no trust in anyone, and they feel like lashing out. And you ask them, you know, when you, when you commit a, a criminal act, when you offend, the reality is there is zero recognition of any victim. They don't see a victim. If they go into a store to hold it up and they're terrorizing someone or beating them, you know, and, and they're going to steal, or if there's a, a sexual offense or, you know, any, any kind of an offense, they actually don't identify with a person in front of them. They get in their mind something that they want and they go after what they want, what they think will bring them happiness. And anyone that gets in the way is just an object that's blocking me from what I want. Even a person who's fighting back, who has been raped, they don't see them. They, they cannot and they don't see the effect that their actions are having on others because they've become so utterly absorbed in a very selfish space. We live in a time where people are taught increasingly to become more self-centered and selfish. Take care of your own happiness. It's all about you. You are so important. And these ideas, while they may sound interesting and attractive to someone that's ignorant, 
are actually really destructive. They're really, really destructive. Something that really upsets me also is, you know, the proliferation of, of pornography and how it has become so widely accepted as being not a big deal. The most terrible thing about pornography is the utter objectification of a human being, where a human being is not seen with the dignity of their humanity and who they are, is seen simply as an object to be used to try and fulfill my sexual urges. This is so corrosive. This has such a profound effect on people's thinking and the way that we relate and deal with each other. So all of the stuff that we've been discussing are activities in the realm of the mind. Generally speaking, people don't really have an understanding of the mind. There is a common idea amongst many psychiatrists and psychologists that the mind, I mean, what is the mind? They think it is a function of the brain. While there is a connection between the mind and the brain, the mind is completely separate from the brain. And I think one way to make it so that people can sort of like understand that perhaps, you know, you have cases where people go into a coma after a, perhaps a traffic accident or something. And they can be monitored and considered brain dead. And I, I know this case where, you know, the person was brain dead, a, a woman. And the doctors were speaking with the parents and saying that there was nothing left anymore and encouraging the parents to consider unplugging because the person was plugged into all these machines that were keeping them, you know, sustaining the body. And the parents, you know, got into a long discussion and strongly objected to the idea. And then it was like, miraculously almost, quite a few months later, the woman came out of the coma and she relayed to her parents, I could hear that conversation and I wanted to scream out to you, don't let them do it. And she couldn't. You know, and according to the medical science, she's dead. There's no brain activity going on. But yet she was still aware. There was sensory perception. And the, the mind was still functioning. She could, you know, think and everything. So, you know, from the, from the perspective of yoga, we know that the, the mind is, is not the brain. It is, it is a, a subtle covering of the soul itself. And the mind can tend towards a lower nature, or if it's guided properly, can adopt a higher nature. And they use the example, like if I take iron, an iron rod, 
An iron rod is cold and rigid and dull, but if I put it into a really hot fire and leave it for long enough, when I take it out, it's glowing white hot. It is now absorbed all of the characteristics of fire. There's light emitting from it. There is heat emitting from it. If I touch it to something flammable, that will burst into flames. So even though it has an inherent characteristic, when it was put into a close association with fire, it took on the qualities of fire. And so in, in, the, in the process of meditation, what's, what's happening is that the mind is being used for spiritual purpose. It's being used as like an extension of the soul, the living being itself. And what happens is that mind begins to take on a more spiritual nature or characteristic. If you simply leave it alone, it will go the root of the body and it will be filled with stuff and the mind is capable of making it so people can do anything. You think that, oh, there's certain things that you would never do. All you need is the right circumstance, the right pressures, and you will do really bad stuff. I mean, really bad stuff. We all have that potential or capability. And so the need to become free from the influence of the mind and instead to try and influence it and utilize it in a brilliant, wonderful way is one of the main side effects, one of the main benefits of meditation. As was explained earlier, this sounds that we use mantra, man, mana means the mind and tra means to draw away or to free, you know, where the mind becomes, where the living being becomes free from the influence of the material mind and instead engages it. So, you know, one of the important things is if you want to live a life of, of purpose, a life that is happy, that is filled with compassion and care and love, then it is really important that you learn to, to how to take charge. The way in which you take charge of the mind is not to fight with it. You don't fight with it. You will lose every time. What you need to do is engage it. It's kind of like, you know, I think most people have had kids and you got a little kid who's throwing a wobbly about something and Oh, I wonder. And then it's like, oh my God, look at that. And all of a sudden, it's like, what, what? Oh, look, 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 there it goes. What, what, what? You know? <laughs> all you've got to do is redirect. You've got to point it. You've got to give it something else to do. The practical examples, uh, and I'll give you one in relation to anger. Anger is probably, with very rare exceptions, one of the most useless 
utterly useless emotions. Nothing good comes of anger. A lot of harm and hurt comes from anger. And people don't really understand that much about it. You know, we always like to accuse, oh, you made me angry. I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. No one can make you angry. The anger that you experience is already there fostering within the heart. And someone has simply poked and now it's erupted. Um, you know, this guy, the American late night talk show host, Jimmy Kimmel. So he always does this weird thing every um, Halloween, which is the big festival in America. And they, they bring the little kids out in costumes and they go knock on doors and they say trick or treat. And the person can play a trick on them or give them a treat, you know, which is usually some lollies candy. And so what they, happens is that, you know, they usually bring them home and they won't let the kids eat them because they'll be up all night. So they say tomorrow we can have some and the next day we'll have some. And then Jimmy Kimmel, he tells them, when the kids get up in the morning, tell them that you ate all the candy and video it <laughs> and send me the video. And then he plays these videos and it's hilarious, you know, where, you know, somebody goes, oh, I'm really sorry. You know, I was so hungry last night. I, I, I ate all the candy. And the kid just like, <laughs> just like turned into a little demon or something, you know, like fire coming out of the eye. <laughs> and, then, and then rarely, but occasionally, you get these, these things where this little kid, you know, and, and the parents are apologizing. I'm really sorry. We we're so hungry. We ate all the candy. We we're so sorry. And the kid's like all concerned about the parents. Oh, don't worry, mommy. It's okay. You were hungry. It's okay. You know, and it's just like, oh, it's so cute. <laughs> but that's, that's a wonderful response. So... You know, the kind of mentality actually carries over from lifetime to lifetime. So people come with sort of like a little bit of um, predisposition to behave and to deal with things in, in certain ways. This anger, though, it comes often from living a much more self-centered life, getting what I want, what I want. The Bhagavad Gita describes that there is an actual course, there is a causation, you know, that leads to the development of anger. And then anger leads to a loss of intelligence. And a loss of intelligence means a person descends into a very hellish condition. And of course, we know the reality of all of that stuff. And, and it begins, the very beginning of it is, it says, by contemplating the objects of the senses. So things that you see, taste, smell, you know, feel. By contemplating an object of the senses, one develops an, an attachment for it. And when you have that attachment and you continue with the contemplation, it now grows to what in Sanskrit is called karma. Karma. It means lust. 
But lust is not just referencing, you know, a sexual expression. It means intense selfishness, which is often what, you know, intense sexual desire is all about, intense selfishness. It's about me and what I, what I want, what I, and what I'm fixated on, what I'm after. And that always gives rise to anger. Either you will get what you want and it won't fulfill you. And so you'll be disappointed. You'll be pissed off. Or you won't be able to get what you want and you'll be frustrated and equally, excuse me, pissed off. You end up in the same place whether you get stuff or you don't get stuff. But the root of it is this selfishness where it's all about me and what I think is really going to make a difference in my life in terms of happiness. When a person becomes angry, we always end up saying things that we shouldn't. We hurt others. In fact, we purposefully say things to inflict pain. It's kind of, I'm feeling so much pain, I'm going to put you through it. That's just like, well, hey, they're two separate things. You may be feeling some pain about something, but, you know, putting somebody else through it's not going to help you at all. Not only is it not going to help you, it's going to make everything worse. It makes it worse. And we can't even figure that one out. We can't figure it out. You know, and then people carry around all this stuff, they bout each other and everything, and then they wait until they're having a fight, and then they're going to start wanting to talk about stuff. Oh, what about the time that you... <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? You cannot pick a worse time to have a conversation about stuff that you don't like than when you're angry and in the middle of an argument, and yet that's the only time we try to talk about it. We're so unintelligent. We don't think, you know, I need to address some of this stuff and I've got somebody that I'm living with and they've probably got all kinds of stuff that they want to address. When everything is calm and we're on a, you know, level platform, perhaps if we engaged in an intelligent conversation, look for a way forward, how can we make our life together better? I mean, that's a whole different approach to dealing with things. Any, any form of negative emotion, especially when it's going for it, or positive emotion, in a heightened state of emotion, never make a decision, never make a commitment. (coughs) Because invariably, you won't follow through. It will be a bad decision or you won't be able to do what you said. The only time you should make commitments and decisions on action is in a very calm state when, every, when you're not being pulled by everything. So one of, one of the really far out side effects of, of the meditation process, you will just naturally find an increased ability to step back from things. When things are raging and you catch yourself 
you hit the pause button. You say, look, I, I don't want to talk about this now. I, I, I'm not going to be able to think clearly. It won't be helpful if I engage. Give me a few minutes. And when I've calmed down, perhaps we can talk. Then you go and you do some of your meditation. Take a walk, breathe. You know, they're going to teach you japa meditation or something, even though it's not the ideal time to do it. It's good to do it because it will help you regain, you know, your equilibrium. And then you must think, how should I address this? What is in my best interest and that person's best interest? And I'm not talking about the interest of your pride, your hurt pride, wanting to get back at them or anything, but your long-term happiness. What should you do? How should you address this? You know, what kind of a conversation should we be having in order to have a good result here, a good outcome? And when you've kind of got it together and calm, then say, you know, I'd, I'd really like to be able to talk. But if in this conversation things start heating up again, let's, let's stop it and step back. And then when we've got it together, let's then re-engage maybe another day or two or whatever, an hour or two. So this is really how mindfulness should be used. Rather than the mind running me and dragging me around everywhere, I must utilize it. And when I'm able to do that, it becomes a wonderful tool that actually leads to my happiness, makes me a wonderful person to live with, <laughs> and, you know, I can have a really positive effect on, on other people's life. So, you know, these are, this is one of the super upsides to having a regular meditation practice. You will truly gain control of your mind and your life, and you will make good decisions. You will think about things. And everybody benefits from this. Nobody can't do it. The guys that I deal with in jail, it just blows their mind, you know, and they're just so moved by, by the experiences that they go through and, you know, the way they begin to act with everybody else. I mean, they're in a testosterone jungle of, you know, everybody. <laughs> against each other and everything. It's always funny, you know, you see them when they first come in when we're, when we're starting a new session and you'll have, you know, 12 guys maybe or as many as 20. And then when they come in, you know, all heavily tattooed and it's like, you know, they're going to listen to you, you know. <laughs> and, and then by about the third class, you know, they come in, they're like little boys, you know. <laughs> They, they respect, and it's, it's because, well, and this is a whole other thing, but this works for everyone because what we're doing is we're tapping into what is part of our eternal spiritual nature. Okay? So that's the benefit. So apart from that one, um, I've actually, after they, they teach you some of the japa meditation and stuff, 
it's really good, and we'll talk about it later, about you know, developing a, a daily practice where you actually set aside some time and you actually begin to cultivate your spiritual life. You engage in a daily practice that will be transformative. And over time, it will be profoundly transformative. All good? So I think we're going to have a chant, okay? Yeah, sure. So we'll have a little chant, and then we're going to have an afternoon tea break. Getting enough breaks? It's starting to get a little bit warm in here, yeah? Are people going to start struggling? No? So... What am I chanting, Gopala Dasi? What? Okay. You're pointing to that one, are you? Okay. So, we're doing this one, she says. She's my boss. Thank you. 
Adios.